Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we're talking with Dr. Shandy Williams, Associate Professor at the University of Dayton. Shannon is the author of Subversive Habits, Black Catholic Nuns in the Long African-American Freedom Struggle, published by Duke University Press this past May. This book is the first full history of Black Catholic nuns in the United States, hailing them as the forgotten prophets of Catholicism and democracy. Drawing on oral histories and previously sealed church records, Shannon demonstrates how master narratives of women's religious life and Catholic commitments to racial and gender justice fundamentally change when the lives and experiences of African-American nuns are taken seriously. She calls attention to Catholic women's religious life as a stronghold of white supremacy and racial segregation, and thus an important battleground in the long African-American freedom struggle. Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Beyond my academic position, I am a historian of the African-American experience with research and teaching specializations in women's, religious, and and Black freedom movement history. I am a historian of the Black Catholic experience, and I'm very interested in the lives, labors, and struggles of Black Catholic women, religious, and lay. I would also like to say that I am a cradle Catholic. I was born into the Catholic Church, and I am still a practicing Catholic. So if there's one line about me, I'm a Black Catholic woman who studies Black Catholic women's history. Yeah. And before we dive into Subversive Habits, tell us about how you came into this particular project. Why did you want to look at Black Catholic nuns in the African-American freedom struggle? One would think, since I am a Black Catholic woman, that that sort of drove my interest into this history. And nothing could be further from the truth. I knew very little Black Catholic history coming out of high school and really going into my graduate program first at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where I earned an MA in African American Studies, and then I earned my PhD from Rutgers University. I knew nothing about Black Catholic women outside of my mother's own story. My mother was one of the first three Black women to graduate from the University of Notre Dame in 1974. My mother was educated in Black Catholic schools in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, educated in Catholic schools all of her life, and then attended St. Mary's College, which is right down the street from Notre Dame for two years. And then in 1972, Notre Dame began admitting women. My mother and two of her friends met with Father Hesburgh, and they went to Notre Dame and graduated two years later. So that was the only sort of history that I knew. And I didn't know much about it because my mother didn't talk about her experiences at Notre Dame. I came to this project really through my interest in Black women's history and Black women's activism in the Black power movement. My first year at Rutgers, I took a seminar in African-American history taught by the great Deborah Ray White, who was a pioneer of Black women's history. And I just took to going through microfilmed editions of Black-owned newspapers, searching for a paper topic for that seminar. And it was during that time that I stumbled upon a newspaper article from the Pittsburgh Courier announcing what was a Black Power Federation of Catholic nuns called the National Black Sisters Conference. And I experienced what I can only call a metanoia. I didn't know Black Catholic history. I certainly didn't know much Black Catholic women's history. And I certainly didn't know that Black nuns existed in my church. 
And I wanted to know why. So really that evening, I called my mom, said, mom, hey, did you know there were black nuns? And she was like, no, didn't know. And so really, I wanted to know more about this organization. And I wanted to also know how my mother and I, who are Catholics, could not know that there were black nuns in the history. I Googled the National Black Sisters Conference. I knew that their papers had been recently processed at Marquette. I you know, went through every database looking for anything that I could find on Black Catholics, obviously came across Father Cyprian Davis's landmark study of the Black Catholic community, and learned from that text, among many things, that there had been two Black sisterhoods founded in my mother's hometown of Savannah, Georgia. And so that, you know, sort of launched me into this topic. Initially, I thought I would write just simply a, a dissertation and a book on Black nuns and Black power, focusing on the National Black Sisters Conference. But when I started tracking down many of these women, some of whom were still in religious life, others who were not, but who were professors or retired professors, I realized that I needed to do something more. First, through my conversations with Dr. M. Sean Copeland, who was one of the leaders of the National Black Sisters Conference, who is now a retired distinguished theologian from Boston College, and then really tracking down and getting interviews with Dr. Patricia Gray, who was formerly Sister M. Martin DePores Gray, who was the chief architect of the National Black Sisters Conference. And it was in my conversations with Dr. Gray that she revealed to me that one of the many things that the National Black Sisters Conference wanted to do was to write a history of Black nuns in the United States. They understood with so many Black Catholics and so many Black people have always understood that one of the greatest weapons of white supremacy is its ability to erase the history of its violence and its victims. And so you have to tell these stories. And so in agreeing to sort of speak with me, it was conditional. One, I had to agree that I would not write a book about her or just about her or the National Black Sisters Conference, but to really turn my attention to the largely unsung and under-researched history of the nation's Black sisterhoods. She was very adamant that I tell all the stories, and she really asked me to do that. So that's a very long way of saying I came to this project by chance, although I think it is providential serendipity. I should have encountered it in my master's program because I wrote a master's thesis on Joan Victoria Byrd who was one of the two female defendants in the Panther 21 trial in New York City. And I was writing that story, come to find out later, right, through interviewing the sisters that she was one of their students, one of the students of the Franciscan Handmaids of Mary. But when I was writing about resurrection, I just sort of said, oh, yeah, she she attended resurrection in Harlem. And then she went on to cathedral where she had experienced racism from the white nuns. And I just didn't look at resurrection. And so I didn't realize it was a handmade school. So... On the one hand, it's it's chance, although I do believe at some point I was called to this history because I was at, at every moment I should have encountered it and I didn't, but I finally did so in 2007. And, you know, that kind of leads me perfectly into my next question. You've talked a bit there about it, that being interviews with former sisters or current sisters still. And so you use a mix of oral history and archival documents to tell this history. You know, what were some challenges you ran into when researching this book? And, you know, why did you take this approach using the oral histories and archival records instead of just, say, archival history? Right. It's a great question. And thanks so much for asking it. I relied on every source that I could get to just because this history had been so suppressed. The nation's two oldest Black sisterhoods maintained formal archives. In the case of the Handmaids, at one point they had an archive. No one knows where it is. We do believe some of Mother Theodore's papers are with the Society for of African Missions. I did not have any luck sort of getting access to those materials, but I did have access to the handmaids who were still alive and former handmaids who were still alive, and especially that of the former superior, uh, Sister Loretta Teresa Richards, who was maintaining her own archive. And so she sent me all of her material and I took it in the, you know, 
got everything back. So obituaries, anything that I could find, periodical records on top of archival sources and the oral histories. To say a little bit more about the oral histories, I never intended to interview as many Black sisters that I did. I actually started doing oral histories because I was in graduate school and in the middle of the semester when I came to the project. And so I literally just didn't have time or the money to go to Marquette to go through the National Black Sisters Conference papers. What I could find, you know, I got through interlibrary loan. I went through the periodicals, any of the press records related to the National Black Sisters Conference that I could pull together, but primarily through the interviews. And sisters would send me their information. I would copy it and send it back. And then we would do the oral history interviews as well. Sisters maintain their own archives on top of that the papers that are at, at Marquette. So initially for the dissertation, I only did about 45 interviews. I did <laughs> over 100 more over the, the past 14 years. And it became very clear to me very quickly that I had to do oral history interviews. Um, in cases of Black women who went into communities um, and didn't remain, oftentimes their records are closed. Sometimes you have to get access and permission from those women if they're still alive or their family members. And sometimes communities just won't give you access to records of sisters who did not persevere. Sometimes you run into barriers getting access to congregational minutes. And that was critical for me simply because a lot of the votes that were taken, these congregational votes about whether or not they would accept a Negro woman if they wanted to live with women in those votes and so in those records. And so at some point I had to start getting special permission. It really changed for me really after 2016 when I did a talk at the Leadership Conference of Women Religious and outlined some of the challenges that I was facing reconstructing this history And several communities reached out to me, offered their support, gave me access to things that I did not get access to before. So for me, there were great difficulties in terms of just sort of traditional barriers that you may have, but also that are just very specific to Catholic archives and church archives and some archives, right? Some, you can't get access to a bishop's papers until 20, sometimes 30, sometimes 40 years after that person has passed on. But the oral histories were critical because there are just simply things that are not in the archives, right? We are dealing with sort of a reality, as I outlined. There are instances in which communities and individual sisters, but also communities either stop access or block access. But then we do know there are instances of archival erasure, of destroying materials. But especially for Black women who went into religious life in the 20th century, almost immediately when I began interviewing the members of the historically Black sisterhoods, again, I'm someone who didn't know much history. I just assumed that they had been educated by the Black orders and went into the communities of their educators. Almost immediately, like, oh, no, I was educated by the SBS. I was educated by the Sisters of the Blessed Virgin Mary or another white order. They rejected me, and I got lucky somebody directed me to the Black Orders. Huh, okay. There, there's information where one would find that, but the oral histories give you a, a different sense. You get the sense of fathers who are tipping the Pullman porters extra because their daughters are going off to the convent that no one has ever seen, and so they leave them behind. But also getting to the point of lost vocations, right? So many women told me when they were rejected, those who were lost vocations, but those who went on to other communities, they said, you know, I never even submitted a formal application. So there's no written record of my request. I asked my teacher. I asked the visiting vocational director and I was given an oral rejection. So there's no written record of it. So of course the oral histories matter. The oral histories matter also because it is in those stories that one can recreate what the Black Catholic experience was like under Jim Crow at various points. Why why families migrated from, you know, Texas to California, right? The experiences of that migration, they don't even make it into subversive habits. One story of a, a Black sister who was a pioneer Black sister in California and Los Angeles, she said, you know, you know, my story is really different because, you know, Black folks didn't take Route 66 to California because most of those places weren't serve as Black people. But she said, we took Route 66 because my mother and stepfather could pass for white. 
And she said, so my experience is my siblings and I rode on the floor of the car because her father was darker. And so she and her siblings were darker. And she said, so we hid on the floor so no one would see us. And so when my parents would rent a motel or a hotel, they would wrap us in blankets and carry us into the hotel so that we did not we were not seen and we did not expose them. That those kinds of stories are also in the oral histories. Stories of beautiful stories of grand, Catholic grandfathers lining their children up in a circle, not lining them up in a circle, putting them in a circle at New Year's uh, <laughs> and praying over each child separately. Um, these experiences that simply have not been recorded Um and, and certainly not been incorporated into these dominant narratives of the U.S. Catholic experience um, and the broader American Catholic experience. So the oral histories were helpful to me in identifying sisters who had left religious life, who had married, who, who I couldn't track down, but also recreating stories and things that I would never get from the oral, from the archival record. Even in the case of the NBSC handshake, right, um, at the executive boards, they would say, you know, one sister would say, do you have the do you have the strength, sister? Second sister, I have the strength. If you do, if you if I do, if you do, and then together in unison, then we're strong, right? All of those things that you just can't get from the archival record. One that's accessible to you, then then not. The black press was also great. Anytime the black press, both black and black Catholic press, got news of a black woman desegregating a white community, they oftentimes did a story, got a photo there. Sometimes that's the only thing that we have documenting a woman, that we have access to documenting the desegregation of a community. So I used everything I could, out of print books, obituaries, Oftentimes, obituaries, women would document their experiences of racism in the obituaries to make sure that even though they were dying, it was not excluded. Even since the book has come out, if you recall, there's an episode in chapter three in which I discuss a Black Catholic sister in Chicago where the white mothers revolted against her. One sister had told me that that had happened to an Afro-Puerto Rican sister, but I wasn't sure if that was the same case. After the book came out, I got an email from a white priest in Minnesota who said, hey, there are two former members of my church who passed on. They died a few years ago, but here's their information. I can put you in contact with their family members. And he sent me one of the obituaries. And there she was. 1962, she was a servite of Mary. He put me in contact with her living sister and her nephew, and they sent me the photo. So again, anything that I could use outside of the archival record, I also used. And I did so also because I did. I was so conscious of how much resistance I had faced already and how much resistance that I, I would encounter. And so I wanted to make sure that I had all of my P's and Q's checked. If there was an oral history record, I, saw, I looked to see if I could find any sort of corroborating archival or periodical sources um, just to sort of make sure that it was not denied because that's one of the great challenges, right? How do you write a history of a group of women who most people believe don't even exist? And then for those who know that they exist, most people have said that their history doesn't matter. And that's not even up for debate, right? It is 2022. Black sisters have been in this country for almost 200 years. That it has taken too long for us to get this history is an indictment in itself, is an testament to the denial of the ways in which this history has been erased, has been marginalized. And as I say in my book, I hope that I've done them justice. And I hope that I have demonstrated why our understanding of Black sisters' history is essential to our understanding of the American Catholic experience. I would even go so far as to say is that one cannot even be considered to be an expert in the Black Catholic experience or the American Catholic experience if they have never stepped foot in the archives of the Oblate Sisters of Providence or the Sisters of the Holy Family. And I will stand on that. I think that 
you do an incredible job, you know, demonstrating that they've been here for over 200 years, you know, and in part, you do that in your first chapter talking about the, you know, pioneering women religious, black women religious entering orders or founding black sisterhoods. And so these women are are challenging, you know, a central tenant of white supremacy, as you say. They're challenging the belief that black people were innately immoral and sexually promiscuous. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about these pioneering women and how they work to resist white supremacy when entering religious life or in their religious life. Absolutely. What was striking for me when I began doing this research is not simply that, you know, these women were there. They're among the earliest sisters to minister in the United States. But they their history intersects with all of these founding members of the church, right? Like we're talking about the Carols, the Spaldings, that in fact the story of Sister Mary Aloysius Beecraft, born Anne Marie Beecraft, um, from what we understand from the historical record, that she is a granddaughter of Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who was the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence and cousin to Bishop John Carroll, who was the nation's inaugural bishop. That these are women who not only have sort of direct connections, but in some cases, biological connections to some of the nation's earliest European Catholic families. So when I say Black history is Catholic history, I, that is not hyperbolic, right? I'm saying that these women are here. Their ancestors are here. They are present in church records. They are encountering with so many of these individuals that we talk about. Um, even if we're talking about sort of Black women um, in the church in a place like Louisiana, where they are a dominant face of the church in Louisiana, or if we're even sort of talking about sort of the beginnings of Catholic history in Spanish Florida, right? What does it mean that the first Catholic, the first marriage, that Christian marriage that takes place in the land territory that becomes the United States is between a free Black Catholic woman from Spain and a Spanish soldier. Black Catholics are here, and they're not here in some marginal way that they are building the church, quite literally funding the church. They are contributing to the development of, of an American Catholic spirituality, not only as lay people, but also as women who are called to religious life. And so when we begin to actually include their stories, take them seriously, see how they encounter with some of these leading church figures, it really forces us to sort of think about the church in a whole new light. There's no way to sort of do it without it. But even if we're talking about these women and challenging the spiritual sort of foundations of white supremacy, sort of this idea that Black people are inherently immoral and promiscuous. What does it mean then that we have these women who are having to contest this, navigate these realities, navigate these ideologies, and we see it in the resistance to the formation of these Black orders? What I sort of draw on, I'm building on the work of Cyprian Davis and Diane Batsmaro and, and, and a few more who have come before me, right, that the Black sisterhoods come about as a result of the anti-Black admissions policies of white communities. In the 19th century, we don't have that much evidence sort of giving us insights into the interior lives of, of Black sisters per se. Um, we do have some records. What's most important, though, is that we have sort of these documents from white Catholic church officials um, documenting how they believe Black women to be and Black people in general to general to be morally suspect at every turn. 
And so what does it mean that these Black women living in the slave South are able to rest and win recognition for themselves and support for their desires to enter religious life and serve communities that are being neglected by the church? That's something, especially when we sort of think about the U.S. today and the Black Catholic population that is relatively small. We would certainly think that those communities would have been founded first in Latin America, but we know that blood purity laws sort of prevent that from happening. We have exceptional cases of Black women allowed to go into religious life, oftentimes, you know, in a relegated space. Um, But it means something that the modern world's first communities for sisters freely open to African descendant women and girls are founded in the United States. When we think about something like a Brazil, which receives the largest numbers of enslaved people who come into the Americas as a result of the transatlantic slave trade, and that becomes home to arguably the largest Black Catholic population in the Americas, they don't get their first community freely open to Black women that's church approved until 1928, almost a century after the obligations of Providence. So something special and miraculous happened in the United States. And we also know it because we have sort of the documentation of these women being described by their their opponents in the case of the obligations of Providence as a profanation of the habit. In the case of the Sisters of the Holy Family in Louisiana, they are denied the recognition and the ability to wear habits for several decades of their first existence. And yet in the case of the Sisters of the Holy Family, we also know, right, after the Civil War, they're buying up properties to expiate the sins of slavery associated with those properties. A former slave trader's pen becomes their first school or one of their earliest schools, and they buy up the former quadrant ballroom where women of their their color and caste would have been sort of subjected to these really, really exploitative sort of this system of arrangement of known as passage. In the case of the Sisters of Providence, we also know that they're admitting women who were born into slavery into their ranks even during slavery. So there's all this, you know, arguably feminist work that these women are doing, and yet it's been overlooked um, in part because we don't talk about Black sisters, but I think also because we have not been very honest about the church's own foundational roles in the development of of slavery, its commitments to slavery and white supremacy. And I think one way to do it right is to tell Black sister stories accurately and honestly, because when you do that, you have to confront the church's largely unacknowledged and unreconciled histories of, of colonialism, slavery, and obviously segregation. Yeah. And that kind of leads us right into my next question. You know, education of Black women and girls is such a, a central part of this history, you know, the black sisterhood leadership understood that to fight things like Jim Crow segregation, the African American community's best weapon was education. So my question is, you know, what was the white Catholic response to black demands for Catholic education? And how did the Catholic church respond to attacks on black Catholics who are making these demands for education by, you know, non-Catholic segregationists. Right. You know, the story of the Catholic church and its relationship to black education is complicated, right? Because we know that so many Catholic schools were in fact, some of the earliest, you know, educational institutions open to black folks, both during slavery and then after slavery. And we know that the Catholic Church will come to play a very important role in Black Catholic education during the Jim Crow era. That being said, we know that the church's commitments to Black Catholic education always pale in comparison to that um, of sort of uh, the white immigrant population and and the white population at large. Uh, But we do, again, know we have examples of sisters, both Black and white, educating Black youth during slavery. We certainly know in the case of some communities, they sort of withdraw from the African-American apostolate, sometimes for a few years, sometimes for decades. Those led institutions led by Black sisters, right, they are going to be the ones 
ones that maintain that commitment and demonstrate an unwavering commitment to the education of Black of Black folks. So again, the church's its its commitments are minimal in comparison to its commitments to its white counterparts. That being said, we know the story of Black Catholic education is uh, is a critical one in the history of Black education in the United States. We know that African-Americans educated in Catholic schools for a long time had a higher success rate than most of their counterparts in the Black community. So many Catholics have committed themselves, Black Catholics have committed themselves to preserving Black Catholic education. And we know that literally hundreds of thousands, we're probably in the millions now, of African-Americans who were not Catholic and trusted the church with the education of their children, in part because so often Black Catholic schools were present or were the viable options and accessible options to folks who were trying to either circumvent racial segregation, deal with the issue of overcrowded public schools, underfunded public schools, or non-existent public schools. And so that is a story worth preserving. But we also know that the church, even you know, non-Black Catholics who teach in Black Catholic schools were not free from the racism of society or the racism of the church as well. And so it's a far more complicated story. We know that white Catholic leaders, when confronted and asked to protect Black sisters who find themselves attacked for their ministries, are at best ambivalent, right? We certainly will see cases in which individual white priests, some sisters and some bishops will take steps to sort of protect sisters if they are in a in a bad situation. At worst, the church will hold, uphold sort of society's commitments to white supremacy like any other person. It depends on the region, the time, the place, etc. Obviously, in my book, I point out sort of clear examples of white bishops and sisters and priests uh, who support Black sisters when they, be, when they are faced with challenges, with the challenges of racial segregation when they need to get their schools accredited right after World War I. When state laws began to change, requiring the, edu- uh, the higher education of private school teachers, the challenge, of course, for the members of the Black sisterhoods at the time, which are, which are teaching sisterhoods, is that most Catholic institutions of higher education will not admit African-Americans, Catholic or otherwise. And so they have to find ways to build alliances with individual and willing sort of progressive white uh, church officials who operate Catholic colleges to find ways to get sisters to desegregate these institutions. And so one of the great stories of Black sisters, right, one of these hidden stories is that these women are also um, forgotten desegregation foot soldiers. Um, These women who are desegregating these Catholic colleges and universities uh, in the decades before the Brown decision in order to secure the the accreditation of their schools. And so in that regard, that's one of the great chapters, right, in the history of white Catholics, those who do come forward. They are a minority of white Catholics, but it's one of the great chapters that that I highlight. And it's what I also underscore. When we actually tell the truth about Black sister stories, then we get all these other examples that we didn't know existed of real commitments to racial justice um, through education. I want to talk a bit about the women at the center of this book. Specifically, you know, you've mentioned it a little bit before, but their experience with racism when entering religious life, or as you've said, the outright rejection from religious life because of their blackness. Can you tell our listeners about these women's struggles when entering these predominantly white sisterhoods when successful? Absolutely. One has to remember, or at least what I what I argue, when we think of women's re- religious life, we have to think about it as a battleground of the African-American freedom struggle. 
when Black women go into religious life, they desegregate, begin to really desegregate white communities after World War II. They are not simply desegregating that community, right? If they are going to be active members of that community, that oftentimes if they're members of apostolic communities that have public ministries, whether it's teaching, nursing, social work, that means that they go out into the communities that their order serves. And so not only are these women desegregating the communities, they desegregate the novitiates, the convents that exist uh, for their communities across the country, the institutions, whether they're schools, hospitals, whatever sort of parishes where their orders serve, oftentimes the universities or colleges that their orders operate. And so these are women who are foot soldiers, but we don't think about them as foot soldiers because they are doing this in isolation. They're doing this away from the protection of news cameras. They're also desegregating many of the sundown towns and hostile towns, which many white Catholic institutions are located in. And so they find themselves oftentimes face resistance. And again, many of them are going in as teenagers. Some of them are the first Black member of communities that number into the thousands. And again, for many women. They are traveling hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles away from their hometowns and the communities that had nurtured their vocations to be able to enter a congregation willing to accept them. So the challenges are immense. And when we think about some of the barriers, right, some of them are just sort of cultural barriers, not being allowed to sort of express yourself and sort of traditions from your African-American community that are oftentimes denigrated in Black communities, right? We know many white Catholic institutions, you know, promote and propagate white supremacy, sort of we know it's well documented, so the prevalence of Black-based minstrelsy shows and, and white Catholic schools and, and white parishes, on top of all of these other ways in which people are miseducated about who Black people are. And so some of the things are just simply cultural, you know, people who have never had any experience with Black people. And so you just sort of say things that are off-colored because you are li- you've literally been educated by American popular culture. In other instances, right, it is sort of very intentionally sort of racist. You know, examples of, in the case of Sister Dolores Harrell, who was a pioneer, Sister of Notre Dame, Dana Muir, having some of her community members, you know, not use the same plates and cups as she did during dining. Oh, goodness, just, just the, the worst things, burning bed sheets, burning mattresses. During pool activities, they would get out of the pool just to show her that they would not be in the pool with her. Really designed to sort of drive women out of religious life, being subjected to verbal taunts, the N-word, terms such as pick a ninny. One can't even begin to imagine the kinds of things, well, I talk about it, but there are also things that I don't say, right? Um, things things that were shared to me that I was asked to keep private about the kinds of bullying that women faced and girls faced when they deserated these communities. And I think what was so important for me after 2016, when I got access to a lot of these congregational minutes, it confirmed the oral history testimonies. So you have sort of documentation of sisters and community leaders admitting, right, that young girls will not be admitted into their communities, that they are perceived as problems before they ever step foot in the community. So the kinds of issues that they were going to encounter, regardless of who they were, even even before you submit the application, sort of requirements are based on color, background, et cetera, was already excluding women. So I think ultimately when we think about these women, we also have to understand whether they 
thought of themselves as desegregation foot soldiers or not. They were being forced to do so. And so when we talk about these women who come along and will eventually found the National Black Sisters Conference, these are women who have broken some of the nation's most difficult racial and gender barriers. Those who form the National Black Sisters Conference and those who don't, right? You know, who never joined that organization. But we're talking about pioneer Black professors, hospital leaders, people who are, you know, desegregating not only sort of their institutions, their colleges, their orders, colleges, right, as students, but then later go on back as faculty members, as chairs of departments, all of these women who have broken all of these barriers, and yet so many of these accomplishments are not known outside of very small Catholic circles. And so I try to open that up in my book and as I say, there's so many other stories that I just don't simply get to tell. But at some point, very soon, I'll be sort of sharing those stories just so we have a sense of the kinds of barriers that they were breaking. I think one story that I do share in the book is that of Dr. Frances Douglas, who I don't say it in the book, but she's the first African-American to earn a PhD in psychology from Fordham, is a is a barrier breaker at so many institutions. But we also believe in 1956, she becomes the first African-American to head predominantly white university uh, in the United States in, in DePaul. And so often we've always focused on the story of Dr. John Hope Franklin, who was the pioneer black historian, but we always thought that he was the first black person to chair a department at an institution, a historically white institution of higher education. Um, but it seems that Dr. Douglas is, is right along the lines with him. I think that was such an interesting part of your book, reading that, seeing these barrier breakers before, you know, the Brown decision was even thought of. But another really interesting aspect of your book that you point out is when we get to the civil rights movement, we see, you know, outspoken, you know, white superiors or white nuns speaking out in support of, you know, racial equality, but not necessarily doing that within their orders, within the church, you know. And so black nuns were also a part of the civil rights movement. They were posted across the country. They were involved in protests sometimes, but very small amount, you know. Um, and, you know, the sister Mary Antona Ebo is maybe one of the most recognized black sisters involved in the civil rights movement, her being at Selma, right? She She's on the cover of the book. Um, but, you know, these women were doing so much work behind the scenes within the church. And I want to focus on that, you know, how did they fight or address the racism they found within their community? And, you know, what did they achieve in the end? It's a wonderful question. You know, part of what I wanted to do in chapter four was to one sort of correct that sort of myth that Black sisters were not involved or concerned with the civil rights movement, right? Sort of identifying those who were in these protests, but also revealing, right, that many of them who wanted to protest didn't get a chance to protest because whether or not if they were members of white orders or even the Black orders, right, were prohibited from protesting and participating in public protest. It's something that I encountered almost immediately when I went through the National Black Sisters Conference papers. At the first meeting, many of those women were like, yeah, we wanted to go to Selma, but we weren't allowed to go. And then there were all these other cases. I only sort of highlight a few in the book, but it's it's there in the records. But also recognizing that even before Selma, even before the liberalizing reforms of the Second Vatican Council, these women, by simply daring and desiring to go into religious life in the white-dominated church, whether they entered the Black orders or whether that they desegregated white communities, they were a part of a freedom struggle within Catholic boundaries that we have to recognize. Not only those who were desegregating white um 
orders who then go on to desegregate other white Catholic institutions. But even through Black Catholic education, that is something that I think was absolutely critical for us to understand. Historians of the Black Freedom Movement, historians of the African-American freedom struggle have always sort of reminded us that the fight for quality education was a cornerstone of the Black Freedom Movement, right? And so certainly we have to sort of think about Black sisters as educators, as participating in the freedom struggle through their campaigns, whether, and in particular, pioneering the teaching of Black and Black Catholic history within Catholic boundaries, calling upon white sisters who minister in Black communities to teach Black history. That's something that the members of the Black Orders are doing through various interracial programs that operate within the church. One in particular, one organization that has been, I feel like, overlooked for too long, the Sisters Conference for Negro Welfare that was founded in St. Louis, that was at the heart of many of these early sort of desegregation battles within the Archdiocese of St. Louis but then through other organizations within the church, but even in their own sort of fights as to be respected and for their expertise as educators of Black youth and and Catholic educators in general that we see in so many ways. But also, again, in sort of maintaining their commitments to desegregating Catholic institutions, certainly in the case of the members of the Black orders, they will continue to sort of desegregate Catholic institutions as the civil rights movement matures. But part of what I wanted to do, particularly with that chapter um, and looking at Black sisters' engagement with the civil rights movement, is to remind us and to really sort of refute this enduring myth that Black Catholics were politically indifferent to the secular freedom struggle, which we know that they are not. Many of them were active in civil rights organizations before they even entered religious life, and and many of them will bring those commitments into the movement. They are members of the forgotten, you know, they're the forgotten Till generation, many of whom were radicalized as a result of sort of the lynching of Emmett Till and the acquittal of his his, um, murderers. And then in one case that I that I highlight in the book, that of Sister Patricia Haley, who was the first African-American sister of charity of Nazareth, who is educated in their school, their high school in Birmingham. And the summer before she enters religious life, she will be arrested for leading her high school's uh, delegation in the Birmingham Youth Marches for Civil Rights. She was the president of the student council. She'll be arrested. She actually thought that she would not be admitted into religious life because of her arrest record. But she goes into the community And almost immediately, you know, she realizes that in the community, their lay workers are subjected to racial segregation. They're separate water fountains. They eat separately. And she leads a one woman campaign calling upon her community to to, to end that practice. And she will fight against other sort of really, really intolerable, other really, really gut-wrenching experiences of racism in the community. But those are the kinds of things that Black sisters are doing once they get into communities, those who had been active before as members of civil rights organizations, as youth organizations committed to uh, ending and eviscerating the color line. I just want to move forward in history now, you know, to more current times. You know, many of us who are studying, you know, American Catholicism, you know, are well aware of the decline in young people joining religious life. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, the population of Black Catholics in the United States is still very small today. But you write that there's a, a steady growth of Catholicism in sub-Sahara Africa, which is supplying a significant number of African sisters to Western ministries, you know, reversing the decline in the Black sister population in the United States, you know. Can you tell our listeners about this resurgence of nuns in the United States? Absolutely. So what we know based on population statistics that we get from the Vatican 
in the next 50 to 60 years, the face of the the dominant face of the Catholic sister in the global church will be brown and in many areas of the world of African descent. And we're certainly seeing that resurgence in the U.S. Catholic sister population. Like the populations of women religious in Europe, we know that they are in decline. The aging numbers, can people continue to leave religious life? Many communities are being revitalized by vocations coming from the global South. Obviously, there are still vocations coming in from Europe and, and in the case of the United States, from the United States as well. But those leading that charge generally are from the global South and in many cases from West and Eastern Africa as well as Southern Africa. So what's been interesting to me sort of thinking about the declining African-American sister population that began to decline really after Vatican II, like their white counterparts. Since 1990, we know that over a thousand African sisters have been mission, either missioned into the United States or who are being educated in the United States or who are joining white U.S. congregations. And so what's been really interesting is to see the impact of that, specifically on the nation's historically Black ministries. And we know that in the case of St. Augustine's, which is, the, uh, which is the oldest Catholic school in Washington, D.C., members of a Nigerian community came and restored Black sisters' leadership at that institution that had been for over a century led by the Oblate Sisters of Providence who were forced to withdraw as a result of declining personnel. So what's been interesting, I think, for me is to think about the connections that members of the National Black Sisters Conference tried to make with Africa in the late 1970s as they recognized the Black vocational crisis and wondering if the birthplace of women's religious life could it then be sort of a site for revitalization of Black religious life. The National Black Sisters Conference will receive an invitation by a Nigerian bishop in the, late, in the early 1970s who comes into the United States seeking African-American sisters to help form an indigenous community in the Diocese of Benin City. He was concerned about the failures of European and white American congregations in his country to nurture, not only nurture Black vocations, but also to celebrate and preserve Nigerian traditions within the culture of the Catholic Church. And so he brings in, um, he meets with the members of the National Black Sisters Conference, and then they send Sister Silva Thibodeau and another sister to go and to sort of meet with them. There are other attempts to build those transnational connections between African-American sisters and African sisters in the 1970s that I talk about. And in the case of the community that is founded in Nigeria, it's the it's it's the only community in Nigeria and perhaps even in sub-Saharan Africa where African sisters wear uh, habits of kente cloth. It's as opposed to the European robes to sort of think about that link. And that community in particular has then sort of established a reverse ministry in the United States in wake of Hurricane Katrina to be able to support the Sisters of the Holy Family whose ministries in New Orleans were destroyed as a result of Hurricane Katrina. So there are these many connections that are there. And I think that we actually need to begin to think about what this will mean, not only for the U.S. church, but for the Western church and the global church, especially when we have not yet fully sort of understood the history of racial segregation and exclusion within the modern church, the impact of the denial of Black vocations and what it will mean now that it seems that sub-Saharan Africa will indeed be supplying significant numbers of African sisters to Western ministries and what it will mean for those women who will have to contend with the historical leg- legacies and enduring realities of anti-Blackness and racism in our church. Yeah. And as I look at the time, I think we have time for one more question. So many congregations have begun to reckon with their past connections to slavery and racism, but others have 
yet to recognize their involvement. You know, how do we preserve and discuss these histories if there are still those within the church hierarchy who won't acknowledge the damage that has been caused? Well, my initial response is the truth cannot be buried forever. Much of this history is still preserved in archives. There is a question of access, but we're at a point now, certainly if we look at the examples of congregations of women religious in Kentucky and in some other spaces, as well as the example of Georgetown, not suggesting that the these are perfect models for reparation, but we are... I I cannot conceive of us going to a point where we're going to sort of go back to this idea of Catholic slaveholding as benign and and more virtuous than other forms of slavery. So much of the attention now that is being turned to the violent realities of Catholic slaveholding, the realities of sexual abuse of enslaved women, if I can point to someone like William Thomas's work, sort of the great work of Kelly Schmidt that will be coming out and other younger scholars who are committed to disabusing the church of this notion of its place as an innocent bystander in the history of white supremacy. There are communities that are committed to reckoning with this history, opening up their archives. I also would point to the example of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, establishing sort of anti-racist platforms and committing themselves. Even if other communities don't open their records and continue to resist, that in itself is admission of guilt. And we recognize that. But for those communities who are ready to reckon with this, I think we're in a place where we have to do it. I think if I'm concerned about anything, I just don't know if we have enough scholars ready to do this work. Are we training enough scholars in this work? Are we training enough scholars in Black Catholic studies? Are we training enough scholars in U.S. Catholic studies to sort of reckon with sort of the centrality of white supremacy in this history? Are we making the connections that we need to make with Latin Americanists and Caribbeanists, whose history is so critical for us to understand this because they have been sort of doing this work for so much time? So for me, I think it's going to take courage. I think it's going to cur- it's going to take time and commitment to actually still go into the archives because in reconstructing sort of black Catholic experiences, we have to go into the archives. We have to sit down with people and take their stories. That's the tedious work. That's the arduous work. And I'm just, and if I'm concerned about anything, I just wonder if enough people are willing to do that hard work. We have to build new archives. We have to find ways to digitize this history and make it accessible to a wide variety of people. And the other thing that I would say is that we have to be very courageous in talking about issues of sexuality, of sexual abuse, during slavery, during segregation, but also within communities. And also, certainly from my own research, recognizing sort of the links between misogyny and specifically misogynoir and the sex abuse crisis that has taken place within the Black community that has been grossly understudied and that which is perpetrated by white Catholics, but also by non-white Catholics. But if I'm hopeful of anything, I am hopeful for that next generation, those who are already doing the work. And I think what we will find is that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what has constituted the U.S. Catholic experience. And I think we can only sort of come better about understanding ourselves when we begin to tell the stories of those who are who are at the margins of this history. Yeah, that's great. And well, actually, I was wrong. It looks like we have time for one more question. Okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah, might be a little difficult, but you know, what projects are you currently working on? This book just came out, but you know, are there any lingering questions that remain from your work on subversive habits that you're planning on pursuing? You know, you just mentioned a little bit there. 
or has your work taken a new direction? No, I'll be doing work on Black Catholic women and Black Catholic faithful for the rest of my academic career. You know, part of what I said in the previous, in my previous answer is that we need to build new archives, right? You know, the next project that I'm working on are the oral histories. Again, only a piece of the oral histories and not all of them, not even half of them end up in (laughs) subversive habits. So there are some stories that I can't tell, but there are others that I want to tell because I don't want to focus primarily on the racism and the white supremacy, right? I want to focus on who Black Catholics were, what their lives were, what their struggles were, but also what the beautiful, you know, realities of their faithfulness meant to them and what it looked like in various parts of the country. So the next project is actually sort of a collection of the oral histories, uh, interviews that I've collected over the years. I'm also working on a documentary history of Black Catholic women in the United States, religious and lay, really interested in sort of these parishes that were founded by Black lay women, but who didn't get credit for it because they're not priests. Um, But yet, if we go through the archival record, everyone says that these parishes were founded by Black women. And then the funerals, right, where thousands of people come to sort of pay homage to these women. I'm also working on a piece, and I don't know if it'll be a book or just an article, but something that really sort of lays out this history of Catholic massage noir. We're living in a moment of crisis, and it seems like we don't have the historical understanding and the frameworks for understanding sort of these contemporary crises in which Catholics are, in certain instances, playing leading roles if we're talking about the Supreme Court, if we're talking about what is happening on the ground. And I think part of this is because we have no understanding of Catholic massage noir and the ways in which white Catholics, but also Black Catholic men have participated. And so I don't know if it's going to be an article. I don't know if it's going to be a book. You know, there's a part of me that says it should be Catholic Massage Noir, a history, just so we sort of lay this lay this out very clearly. So we can have at least some framework for understanding these contemporary crises. And certainly what I see for subversive habits, what I hope I've done most importantly, outside of just simply doing justice to Black sister stories, was laying a framework for understanding the Black Catholic experience in which Black Catholic women and girls are not unimportant, because that's just simply not true. I hope I've laid a framework from which generations, new new scholars will build upon, challenge, and if necessary, correct, right? We needed something to challenge this. And I think, for me, subversive habits is a testament to what can happen when we do not believe, <laughs> I'll just say it, when we do not believe the lies that have been told about us that suggest that Black Catholics are somehow anomalies within the U.S. experience, within the experience of the U.S. church, and certainly um, for those who believe that Black Catholic women have played no important roles in the making of American Catholicism, hopefully subversive habits in my future work will will upend that grotesque myth um, as fast as I can get these, get this work out. Yeah. And I think you've definitely put this on everybody's radar. And I hope our listeners will go out and buy your book because I I can't recommend it uh, enough. But thank you, Shannon, for, for being on the show. Thank you so much, Allison. It's really been a pleasure. Great. This has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network.